So let's get here in the scripture, Psalm 32. I'm going to start by reading it, and um, let's just pray that the Lord will illuminate his word to our hearts, and we can just take it in, and uh, just encourage you to, uh, you know, fix your mind on the scripture right now, and, uh, you know, let's just take our thoughts captive and get here in the word of God. And so uh, notice here again, Psalm 32, verse 1, a psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah, or pause and consider that. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Verse 6, for this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, these shall not come near to him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must, be, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord and mercy shall, shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So much here in the psalm for us to glean from. The three things that we see, three major things that we see in the psalm is first of all, that when David sinned and when he covered that sin, there was ramifications for it. We talked about some of those ramifications last week in Psalm 31, and we'll touch a little bit more on that here in a minute when we set this up. But this morning, David talks about just the inward man. And as he kept these things hidden from the Lord versus keeping a short account with God and bringing his struggles before the Lord, there was a, there was a drought that came upon his spirit. There was a drought that came upon his walk with the Lord. There were physical ailments that came upon him. And he's really wanting to teach us in the psalm to be honest with the Lord and trust the Lord with our struggles and even those things that we think we have to keep from him. Because if we don't, absolutely, there's going to be a chastisement from a God. And listen, that's not a mark of his hatred towards us, but it's a mark of his love towards us. God doesn't want us to be successful in our rebellion. He doesn't anoint rebellion he wants to bring us into green pastures remember he's the shepherd that does that so as david speaks about that this morning we want to consider those things we also read in the psalm about david lamenting over his sin and we want to be a people that don't cheapen god's grace to the point where we say well no big deal i'm under grace praise god for grace without grace we have no hope but let's remember that our sin put the lord on the cross and oftentimes our sin has ramifications that hurt others, that hurts our witness, that again robs us of joy and can rob us of an empowered walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why in James 4, 8 through 10 it reads, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then James wrote, humble yourself on the side of the Lord and he will lift you up. And praise God in this psalm. Not only does David speak of the suffering because of his hidden sin and lament over his hidden sin, but he talks about humbling his heart before the Lord. And in that, he rejoices in the forgiveness found in the Lord. And the freedom found in the Lord when we come before him and say, Lord, here I am but a sinner Wash me and cleanse me. I want to be real with you. I need your help. And in this psalm, as he rejoices over his sin found in his Savior who suffered for him, we want to learn to do the exact same thing. To be a people who rejoice in the finished work of the cross of Calvary. And to look to the Lord. And to be strengthened from the Lord. And know who we are in Christ Jesus. And the fact that he is faithful to us even when we are faithless. So notice how the psalm starts. We read the psalm here and it has a heading. And some of the psalms have headings and others don't. We've been talking about this as we've been in the psalms here the last several weeks. And we see this one starts by saying a psalm of David, a 
contemplation. Now remember, some of these psalms that are written by David were also told when they were written. In other ones, we just read that David wrote the psalm as he wrote many of the psalms, the majority of them. And when we don't know when it was written, it serves us well to step back and compare Scripture with Scripture and see where does this line up with the light of David, in the life of David. And pretty much all commentators and historians agree that this psalm was written after David asked for the Lord's forgiveness after a year of hiding all the sin or trying to hide all the sin from the Lord concerning Bathsheba and Uriah and all the mess that came out of that. Last week in Psalm 31, we talked about some of the ramifications with the generational sin and the sin of Amnon and Absalom and all the turmoil that came from that. And yet in all of it, David said, you know what, I I grieve over my sin and there is a campaign against me. But in all of it, I only have one place to turn the Lord. He said, I'm going to trust in the Lord, even in all of this. And God saw him through. And what a wonderful picture of God's grace. This morning, though, he's talking more about that season that he was in of hiding that sin. And just a real recap. Remember, we read there in 2 Samuel 11. It was the time of the spring when the kings were to go out to battle. And David, the king of Israel, had been called to drive the Canaanites out of the promised land that was given to Israel. God had given that land to Israel, and by the way, that land is still Israel's today, but he gave them that land to separate them so that through them, the Savior of the world would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that land was given to them, and also when he gave them that land, it was full of a Canaanite people who were rebellious people, a people that practiced child sacrifice, they worshiped demons, gross sexual immorality, And though, praise God, there are a handful of Canaanites that you see repent and come to the Lord in the Scriptures, for the most part, these were a people that shunned the gospel over and over and over again. So God was using Israel as an instrument of judgment before them. So in the spring, they were to go out and battle and take what the Lord had given to them. But this spring came along and David said, listen, I'm going to take some time off from my walk with the Lord. Have you ever been in that place? Take a little vacation. I'm going to have a week without devotions. I'm just going to go do my own thing. Or maybe you've stepped back from things you know the Lord is calling you to do. And you step back and say, well, I don't have time for that right now. I'll eventually get back to that. That's kind of where David was. So that was a first mistake that he made. And then we talked about last week. And we talk about this passage so much because there's so much to glean from it. One night, he's up there on his roof, not about the business that God had called him to. If he'd been about that business, he wouldn't have been on the rooftop that night. And he looks down, and Bathsheba is bathing, and she's beautiful to behold. That's when immediately we want to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And not continue to think on that, but turn. Turn from that, and you know what? Absolutely, quote scripture. Fornicators and adulterers will be judged, but... The marriage bed is honorable and so forth. But David didn't do that. And instead, he began to lust after. Then he inquired and he got a warning. Those around him said, isn't this Uriah the Hittite's wife? You know, David, what are you doing here? Those guys really stepped out on a limb and really were loving David and warning him. Yet David ignored them. Bathsheba was inquired of and she came up and the two committed adultery. And we know that she conceived that night and Uh, sometime, a few weeks later or so, she told David, I'm with child. And at that point, listen, David was deep in, and that would have been the point, or even earlier, to say, listen, I need to confess this before God, to bring it before him. But instead, he thought he could get away with it. Remember, he called Uriah in from the battlefield. Uriah was out doing what God had called him to do, thinking that surely he'll go and lie with his wife, and then when this little you know what, ruddy, handsome child comes forth that looks just like me, they'll think it's Uriah's son. This is why scripture says, beware, your sin will find you out. Uriah had more integrity than David, though. And he said, I can't go lie with her while my men are on the battlefield. So he slept in the street. So again, David, instead of confessing, he continued to hide it. And he said, well, let me get him drunk. And surely if he's drunk, he'll go and lie with his wife. And he got him drunk, yet he still had his integrity in saying, I can't do that. So remember, he wrote a note to give to Joab, the captain of the army, and even set it by the hand of Uriah the Hittite. You talk about some sinister stuff here. And the letter is said to put Uriah in the front of the battle and to withdraw from him so the Ammonites could kill him. The plan was executed. The plan came to fruition. David thought that he'd gotten away with it. We'll talk a little bit more about that 
as we get into this, and yet we can't hide anything from the Lord. Now about a year went by, and David talks about that year, especially in verse 3 and 4, how in that year his vitality was taken from him. That joy of the Lord, that strength of God that had always been with him was no longer there. And about a year went by, and yet God is faithful when we're faithless, because we read in the next chapter there in 2 Samuel 12 that the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And Nathan goes to him to rebuke him, yet he goes and the power of the Holy Spirit, he goes in such a gentle manner, in a gentle way, and with great wisdom. He doesn't go in anger, he doesn't go in a vicious manner, he doesn't go to rip him apart, but he goes and he shares a story with David that the Lord had no doubt given him, knowing that this thing will connect with David's heart. And he talked about a poor man who got a sheep, and he raised that sheep in its home, and that sheep became like another member of his family. And I just can see this sheep with a little vest on him and a hat, maybe a monocle and so forth and whatnot. And there was a rich man that had great herds and flocks and so forth. And some folks came from out of town. And instead of taking a sheep from his flock and, you know what, taking it to feed those coming from out of town, he said, I'm going to go steal the sheep of the poor man and I'm going to use that sheep to feed this people that are coming from out of town. And see, this resonated in David's heart because David was a shepherd and he wasn't a hireling. David didn't flee when the wolf and lion came. He wasn't there just to get paid. He was there to protect the sheep. And it meant he withstood wolves. And it meant he took them through, through you know, desert places and through cliffs and mountainous regions to bring them to green pasture and to let them lie by still water. So it resonated in his heart. And in verse 5 there, 2 Samuel 12, it says, So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he talks about how the man should give restitution. And then David said, this man shall surely die for this. Now that's some pretty harsh judgment for a guy that is unrepented from adultery and murder. And then in verse 7, Nathan dropped the bombshell. He said to David, you are the man. And he began to talk to David about all the blessings that God had given to him. And he said, listen. If you needed more, all you needed to do was ask. We have a generous God. If you needed more than all of this, just ask, and God would have given it to you. He says, but instead, you've despised the commandment of the Lord, and begins to get specific about his sin, and begins to talk about the ramifications that would come, and we talked again about some of those last week, practically. And then in verse 13, it says, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What a glorious thing. When he finally humbled his heart, when he finally said, I'm done hiding, I'm done running, I'm done keeping this from the Lord, I confess to you, this is my sin. Immediately, the Lord has forgiven you of your sin. And this psalm was birthed out of that. This psalm of praise, this psalm of instruction. Notice here, a psalm of David, a contemplation and we want to talk about a contemplation and what that is and what that is not a contemplation means first of all a meditation it means to think on this to consider it not to gloss over this and it's important that we know the biblical definition definition of contemplation and meditation because there's an assault on those words and what that is in this day that we are living in we need to know and understand we've talked about this often but just had it impressed on my heart that we just need to briefly talk about it again today. God has called us to worship him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. God has given us a brain to, what? To use, right? And it's not that we use our mind separated from him but we're told especially in the area of spiritual warfare and this is just true in all of our life because spiritual warfare is continually going in second corinthians 10 5 it says we are to bring every thought into the captivity of the obedience of christ god wants us worshiping with our mind god wants our mind set upon him he wants us thinking on the scriptures he wants us to be a people that are filtering what's coming before us through the scriptures. That's where the bulk of spiritual warfare takes place. On our knees and between these two things on the side of our head here. Taking our thoughts captive. 
Unfortunately, we are living in a time when the word contemplation and meditation, it's being redefined. And no longer is it thinking, but it's moved into not thinking. It's being moved today into emptying your mind, freeing your mind of thought, and entering into a place of mysticism and entering into a spiritual plane where we are told all of our problems will be solved by so many. Many, many are beginning to think that perhaps this will be the religion of the Antichrist. Because there's this call today to say, listen, men have all these differences, but they can find unity on the mystical plane. Now, before you shut me down here and say, Steve, you're getting way out here, you got to understand this stuff is rapidly becoming mainstream. Rapidly being packaged and put kind of in a Christian wrapping, but it's not Christian at all. And I say these things this morning, not to try to beat, any, beat anybody up or to try to, you know what, uh, pronounce a, 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 a spirit of holier than thouness or something like that. But I want to share these things just out of concern for the body of Christ and out of concern for you. What's being taught today about contemplation and meditation in so many circles is the idea of taking one word and repeating it over and over again or a phrase. And what happens when you begin to do that, you move from thinking to not thinking. That's what a mantra is. You take a word, you begin to repeat it over and over again. Well, after about three or four turns of saying that word, it begins to lose its meaning. And you begin to go from a place of thinking to an altered state, and you will have a spiritual experience. You will enter into a mystical plane. But you're going to find on the mystical plane, you're not going to find the Lord there. God's told us not to use vain repetition. God's used to, told us to take all our thoughts captive. But you enter into a place where there's deception, where you can be easily deceived because no longer are you worshiping God in your mind, but you're entering into this mystical place. Listen, this is what's coming with yoga here in the West. And as I say this again, it's not to try to condemn anybody. It's not to try to beat anybody up. I'm not saying this to ruin anyone's day here. I know there's a lot of professing Christians that have got into yoga. I mean, you drive around our town, it's all over the place. It's in commercials. For goodness sake, they're teaching it in our public schools. Our cities facilitate it, yoga classes and so forth. Would they facilitate a prayer class to the Lord Jesus Christ or a Bible class? No, yet ask any yogi or guru in the world and they'll say you cannot have yoga without Hinduism and you cannot have Hinduism without yoga. Are we condemning stretching here this morning? Absolutely not. We need to stretch, right? These tents are wearing down. Stretching helps them last a little longer. Are we condemning exercise? No, it profits a little. <laughs> so let's get a little profit out of it. You got to understand though, and listen, we're going somewhere with this and then we'll move on. But the word yoga means to be yoked. God said not to be unequally yoked, right? We're to be yoked with the Lord. To be yoked, it means to be in a harness with something else and you're moving planet. Uh, plowing a field but yoga means to be yoked with your higher self or with the universe and you got to understand that yoga is a process of meditation that awakens the kundalini in you and you're like oh boy kundalini what are you talking about here do your research this is very commonplace this, is, this isn't like something that's hidden it's all right out in the open here's a typical definition kundalini is the feminine creative evolutionary force of infinite wisdom that lives inside Every single one of us, usually represented as a snake coiled three and a half times around. Kundalini lies dormant at the base of the spine. Kundalini awakening is said to result from deep meditation and consequently enlightenment and bliss. And oftentimes what happens is people will go and practice a yoga or they'll say it's Christian yoga, though there's no such thing in the scripture. And there's kind of a bliss and enlightenment. It seems like there's a freeing from that. Well, listen. That's how the enemy of our soul works. He says, come and you know what? Practice this stuff even unknowingly so I can get a foothold, so I can get a stronghold. And I'm going to tell you this morning, a lot of the emergent and a lot of the doctrines that have come in the church that contradict the scripture, those people introducing those things, the majority of them say, I got these ideas from contemplative prayer, from meditative prayer. This process of entering into this mystical state. Ray Young and a brother, dear brother, who went to be the Lord recently, who had a heart for people, 
This guy wasn't a heretic hunter. He wasn't going out to run people. Such a sweet man that loved the Lord. He wrote about contemplative prayer. He says the purpose of contemplative prayer. Now this is the kind of the Christian form of it. Again, this idea of a phrase repeated. Some call it breath prayer or centering prayer. I'll enter this, this phrase over and over again. And again, it's a mantra. And you will have a spiritual experience, but it's not biblical. Again, the Lord said not to use vain repetition. He says the purpose of contemplative prayer is to enter into an altered state of consciousness in order to find one's true self, thus finding God. Thus true self relates to the belief that man is basically good. Proponents of contemplative prayer teach that all human beings have a divine center and that all, not just born-again believers, should practice contemplative prayer. And now here's a few quotes from a couple, I don't know their hearts, but they claim to be Christian leaders that have really radically, one, gotten radically away from the truth of Scripture, but Tony Campolo, maybe a name you're familiar with, he speaks about Christianity and Islam finding unity on the mystical plane. He says, beyond these models of reconciliation, a theology of mysticism provides some hope for common ground between Christianity and Islam. He says, both religions have within their histories examples of ecstatic union with God, which seems at odds with their own spiritual traditions, but have much in common with each other. So in other words, he's saying, listen, Muslims teach there's only one God and he has no son. And all is not the same God that Christians worship. Because we know that there is one God who's revealed himself in three persons. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, singular at the same time, one. And his son came and died for our sins. And he's recognizing the fact that you're not going to find unity, but through contemplative prayer and meditation and entering into that mystical plane, unity can be found. Unity can be found in that place. Thomas Merton, a Catholic priest, wrote, Contemplative consciousness is transcultural, religious, transformed consciousness. It can shine through this or that system, religious or irreligious. Because these guys have figured out. Listen, even if you're a non-believer, a Hindu, or a Buddhist, or whatever you are, if you practice these things, you're going to enter into a mystical plane. And the enemy always comes as an angel of light. And as a Christian, if you practice these things, which violates Scripture, you're going to enter into a mystical plane as well. I'll give you an example. If a believer and an unbeliever get together and decide to have a night of of smoking pot and indulge in drug usage and so forth, you're going to enter into that same mystical plane. You absolutely are. And I know some believers say, well, God will protect me. If these things aren't good, God will protect me if I use yoga. God will protect me if I... You know, practice contemplative prayer. Maybe you're right, but listen, I get a, I get a charge from it, so I'm going to practice it. God's going to watch over you. Listen, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But absolutely, you're opening the door for demonic influence in your life. And you're crossing a boundary that God has put forward. To worship him, to love him with our mind, to take our thoughts captive. And so I just throw that out there. Listen, it's on my heart. It just seems like this stuff comes over and over again. If maybe you're in a place where you're like, I've been practicing these things. I'm not saying this to beat you up today. I'm not saying this to be Danny Downer up here. Not Debbie Downer, but Danny Downer or whatever else. Like, my name's Danny. How dare you use my name? Listen, I'm saying this to you to warn you. And please, go research this stuff. There's something called Google. Right? We research recipes and all kinds of stuff on there. Please look into this yourself. We have books, we have videos, we have pamphlets. This is being said to warn you. This is being said to protect you. This is being said to try to be a faithful shepherd to you. Please don't take it any other way. It's not saying we have a cornerstone on truth here. God has the cornerstone on truth. But we have to compare these things with the scriptures. Now the word contemplation here, it also means instruction. And this is written for our instruction. Just as all scripture is written for instruction and righteousness, as we read there in 2 Timothy 3.16, but as David wrote this especially, saying, please learn from my mistakes. Don't do what I did. Don't hide your sin. Don't be in a place where you're running from the Lord. Bring that before God so you can have a restored joy with your walk with the Lord. And this is why, listen, he starts the psalm off and he ends the psalm, not with lamenting over his sin, are not recapping the chastisement that came when he hid his sin, but instead he begins it and he ends it in rejoicing in the forgiveness found in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He starts here by saying blessed. The word blessed means happy, happiness, or how happy. And he says, blessed is he whose transgression, a transgression means crossing over the line. It's the picture of a trespassing. And we know the line is God's word. David transgressed. He walked over the line when, first of all, it was the time of the spring. He didn't go out to battle. Then when he began to lust, he crossed over the next line. And then when he engaged in adultery, the next line. He tried to cover up the next line. He put a hit on Uriah, the next line. Uriah was murdered, the next line. And then the cover up, the next line. Man, he crossed all the lines. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin, the word sin means to miss the mark. Yeah, the mark had been missed. But blessed is the man whose sin is covered. We must rejoice in this because it's so easy to fall in sin, is it not? It is so easy for believers even to fall into sin. Now again, let's get clarity here. When we come to Christ Jesus, we're washed of our sin, amen? And we're in a place where positionally we are right with God. We are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we should rejoice in that. David never lost his salvation, But practically, now David is walking in sin that he's not confessing before the Lord. And as a result, there's consequences for that. Those practical things that God wants us to bring before him because he didn't wash us of our sin to go back in our sin and to live in our sin, but now to walk in the new life found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that doesn't include making provisions for sin and covering up. You know what it is? It's wrestling with sin and it's going to the Lord to say, Lord, help me in this. That's the picture of a vibrant Christian life, being honest and real with God. And David here is rejoicing, no doubt, in the fact that positionally he's right with the Lord and practically he's brought these things to the Lord so they could be forgiven, so that they could be washed, that they're no longer on his books, so to speak, practically speaking. And again, it's so easy for us to fall into it because we have a sin nature. And the flesh wars against the soul day in and day out. And listen, the enemy, the world, and our flesh are all really, really good liars. They're really good at taking sin and making it look like, listen, hope and joy and fulfillment and pleasure is going to be found in all of those things. And let's not lie, it's pleasurable for a season, but the end of it, it brings death. Romans 5.12, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sin. Again, we have that sin nature. It's just so easy to fall into it. This is why Paul said, I die daily. He understood, listen, I can walk on the spirit for three weeks straight, but I gotta die daily because the flesh comes a knocking day after day after day after day saying, come partake. Have you found this? <laughs> Have you ever left in church, maybe, and just filled with the Spirit, rejoicing in the Lord? You served that morning, you were ministered that morning, and then you drive down, and you're cut off in the intersection. Instead of hallelujah, it's something else going up, and you're like, I just got in the flesh. The flesh is relentless, and so is the enemy of the soul. But he's saying, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Not only, again, are they saved from hell, but... Absolutely, when we practically bring those things before him, then we're in a place where we're walking, abiding in the Lord, walking in fellowship with the Lord. And that doesn't come through us. We can't cover our own sin. Many men have tried and they have failed. Adam, when he sinned in the garden, remember, he immediately saw that he was naked. It's not just talking about physically. He knew that he was no longer under the covering of God. And so what did he do? He went and he hid himself and he tried to cover himself. And he said, if I sew some fig leaves together, I can cover my sin. I can cover my shame. Didn't work though, did it? We'll talk more about that here in a minute. Think about H and the great troubler of Israel. They went into Jericho. God said, all the first fruits belong to me. But Achim went in and he saw some gold and garments and he stole them for himself. And what did he do? Did he run out and say, hey, everyone, look what I got. No, he took and he went and he hid it dug a hole and he hid it under the ground, right? He said, I'll cover it. But eventually it came out. Our sin always finds us out. Or think about the Galatians. It's kind of the opposite of Achan. They said, we want our sins to be covered. And instead of turning where the sins could be covered in the blood of Jesus, they said, it's the Lord plus what we can do. We can get it covered ourselves, Or we can take care of that last 1%. We can't cover our sins. We can't find forgiveness, you know, through ourselves. Repentance, that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. 
Paul quoted Psalm 32, 1 and 2 in Romans. He says in Romans 4, 5, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justified the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. So in other words, he's saying righteousness comes when we put faith in the Lord. And when we put faith in the Lord, we're washed, we're forgiven, we get covered by the blood of Jesus. And this is where he quotes Psalms. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And see, not only when we come to him, does he cover our sin, through his shed blood, Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. But that sin is to never be seen again. He doesn't forgive us and then when we're in a tough place, begin to bring it all up. We talked about, again, our sin transgressions being separated as far as the east is from the west and then isaiah 38 17 it says but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption you have cast all my sin behind your back and this is talking about again positionally we are seen now in christ to the shed blood of jesus not as sinners but as saints and again now god has called us to walk in fellowship with him And when we say, I don't want to walk, I'm going to hide. Again, God loves us too much to keep us in that place. That's what David's talking about here. What a wonderful thing to know in Christ, we are covered. We have assurance of our salvation. Listen, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, you know what that means? It means it's finished. Aren't we blessed this morning? Again, is he your Lord? Can you say amen to that? Then we are blessed. And now let's walk in that blessing. And again, when we walk in that blessing, that's an honest walk with the Lord. Verse 2, he builds on this. He says, blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. The word impute here, it's a term used in accounting. It says you have debt on the books. And it's debt that we can't pay. It's a debt that no matter what we do, silver and gold and good works, whatever it is, we can't pay that debt. But Jesus redeemed us through his shed blood, we read in 1 Peter, with the precious blood of the Lamb, with the life of the Lord. To be redeemed, it means to be purchased out of slavery, never to be put on the auction block again. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. Is that not wonderful? And so in our day-to-day life, listen, when things come up, we don't want them on our books practically. Because when they're on our books, listen, God's going to deal with that. We talk about this often. We need to because a lot of times there's confusion in this. Does a believer need to ask for forgiveness? I thought they're already forgiven. We are forgiven. Positionally, we're right. But practically, these feet at times get dirty, do they not? And sometimes mud gets slinged on, and other times we're in the mud puddle splashing away, aren't we? And God wants us to recognize that. These sins put the Lord on the cross. God died for these sins. Instead of celebrating them, let me bring them back to him because he didn't die for me to go back and use grace for a license to sin. And this is where David says, blessed is the man who the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Again, for a year, David was trying to deceive the Lord. The word here is guile. It means to be sly or cunning. We might be able to be sly and cunning with one another, but not with the Lord. In fact, I would have to think that there were probably many that thought David was being very righteous in what he did. They didn't know what was going behind the scenes. They just knew that Uriah, one of David's mighty men, had died. And it seems that now David marries his widow. And many probably thought, wow, what an awesome king we have. Uriah was one of his mighty men. They were like brothers. And now David marries his widow to be able to care for her and tend to her and so forth. What a great king that we have. Maybe that was part of the reason why he was hiding this because perhaps praise he was getting from the people. We don't know for sure, but it's just a thought. But a boy wasn't hidden from the Lord, was it? God knew all of it. And this is why in verse 4 he says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah, consider that. And listen, that doesn't describe a non-believer when they're in sin. 
This is a description of a believer, one who knows better, one who knows the Lord died for me. God is my Savior. He's washed me. And instead of walking in that newness of life, here I am trying to cover up these things to put him on the cross. Listen, as a born-again believer, when we are in that type of sin and rebellion, we can't enjoy our Savior, and we are not going to enjoy our sin either. He loves us too much for that to be the case. And so when he hid his sin, when he was deceitful with God, physical, spiritual, mental suffering came upon him. Instead of having a spirit of freedom and joy, there was a heaviness. There was no vitality. There was no unction. His hidden sin quenched the work of the Holy Ghost in his life. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Notice here, abstain from every form of evil. These are keys in not quenching the spirit. And David was not abstaining from forms of evil. He had practiced forms of evil. Now he was hiding those forms of evil. And as a result, the Holy Spirit was quenched in his life. There was no power. There was no fruit. God is not going to anoint that kind of rebellion. And David, who so often walked in the power of the Holy Ghost, wrote Psalms as the Spirit of God moved on him, slayed giants, did all these incredible acts through faith in the Lord God. He knew what it was to have the Spirit of God working in his life. And he says, listen, my life is just dried up now and it's affecting my whole person and my whole body. And that was a good thing. That's a good thing. It's a good thing that God chastises those who he loves. It's a picture of grace. It's a picture that he loves us. It's a picture that he cares for us. If you're in a place where you are happy for facilitating sin, and you feel happy and that you can say, I'm forgiven, but I can practice this, I encourage you to check yourself. I ain't gonna judge anyone's heart, but the Bible says if we judge ourselves, we won't be judged. Because it, be, it may be very well that you are using the grace of God as a license of sin, and in that you're denying the Lord Jesus Christ. What a frightening place to be in. God didn't want David to get away with it. Charles Spurgeon said, God does not permit his children to sin successfully. And we need to thank him for that. And in all of this, he says, Sailor, think about this. He's saying, learn from me. I hid my sin, and as a result, I dried up like the drought of a summer. And we know about droughts, don't we? Verse 5 I acknowledge my sin to you, and in my iniquity I have not hid, and I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Against Selah, think about this. I hid, I dried up, I confessed, and immediately I was forgiven. It was that simple. When David said, I have sinned against the Lord, there wasn't all of this rigmarole, but immediately Nathan, moved by the Holy Spirit, said, the Lord has also put away your sin. 1 John 1, 9, it's written to the believer, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I saying, Selah, think about that. Confessing is better than hiding. Be honest, ask for the Lord's help. Think about Adam when he finally came out of the bushes and he had the fig leaves on him and so forth. Did God take him over and bully him and beat him up and say, back, you know, to, to, to the dust with you? He said, you're gonna return to the dust eventually. There's consequences for your sin, but he immediately gave him the promise. A Savior's going to come through the seed of the woman, and though that serpent will bruise his heel, that Savior's going to crush his head. And then the Lord took him over and provided a sacrifice for him, and he covered him with the skin of that sacrifice, and it was a picture of saying, listen, you can't cover yourself, but I'm going to bring a sacrifice that will cover you, and that was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you so much this morning, if you are hiding things from the Lord, to bring it before him. And if you're in that place where you go, I know I'm hiding it, and I know it's wrong, but I'm not ready to stop doing it. It's got a grip on me, so I don't know what to do here. Bring that before the Lord. I've shared my testimony many times. Came to the Lord as a little boy, and got into a place of practicing sin, gross immorality, and all sorts of things year after year after year. eating away at my soul and so forth. And I started really seeing the effects in my life and the life of people around you. When people practicing the same types of sins are dying, it's a wake-up call. And when you're having near-death experiences and people are saying, we're gonna kill you and those sorts of things, reality starts setting in a bit. And it's like, I don't know how I'm gonna get out of this. I love doing these sins, but I know I need to be walking with my Lord. 
And I finally just came to the Lord and I said, Lord, I'm loving my sin, but my sin's destroying me. I know it's wrong. I bow down at the altar of demons and I worship. They have a stronghold on my life. And I fiend for these things. I can't get them out of my system. So I'm asking you to help me to begin to hate these things. I'm asking you to meet me where I'm at because I don't have anywhere else to turn. Make me hate this stuff that I love so much. And my flesh continued to love those things, but guess what? My spirit began to hate them. And it was long after that I could really come before the Lord and say, God, I surrender. But it all started when I finally got real with him. And listen, you can take that or leave it, do whatever with it you want. But notice here, David is saying this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When I acknowledge, when I quit hiding, when I confess, you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah, or think about it. Consider it. Verse 6. He says, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near you. This is glorious here. David pleads with others to repent. David pleads with others to seek after the Lord today. He says, seek after him when he may be found. You're like, well, when's that window? You know, when is that window that he may be found? You know when it is? It's right now. 2 Corinthians 6.2. In an acceptable time you have heard, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. So we ask, well, when's the acceptable time? When's the day of salvation? Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you have not called on the name of the Lord, it is time to do that right now in this place. As we are gathered here, it is time to call on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's things you've been hiding from him and keeping from him, now, right now is the time to bring those before him. Don't harden your voice to the Holy Spirit when you hear it today. And then he says, surely, Surely flood, in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near them. And he speaks here of, again, the flood of Noah, where a judgment on the world came. We know a fire of judgment is coming on this world. But he says, listen, when you call on the Lord, that flood won't come near to you. Just like Noah in that ark, we have an ark too. And it's not made out of gopher wood, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ who died on wood to save us. What a glorious place to be. Isaiah 43, 2, he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. Quickly here, verse 7. David says, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And everything has changed. David's gone from this place of drought to this place of praise, this place of, of again, an abundance, an overflow of the waters of the Holy Spirit in his life. And basically when he says, I, when I quit hiding... Then the Lord hid me. When I just came to him and said, Lord, I'm, I'm done. I'm ready to come before you. And how many times do we not come to him because we're afraid that's what's going to happen? And he says, come to be all who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you what? A beating? No, he says, I will give you rest. And I love it. He says, you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Because now David's in a place where he can really praise the Lord. Listen, David, again, the psalmist of Israel, the king, a lot of people must have thought he's doing a noble thing here. And I imagine David went along with the outward display, right? Going to the temple and singing with the choir and so forth. But boy, he wasn't really singing. He was just mouthing the words. But when he gave it all to the Lord, boy, there were songs of meaning then. It was songs of deliverance. That's when he could say, listen, God has delivered me. That's my jam and really mean it. And before he was like, I'm just singing the words here. Verse 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. This is the Lord again speaking to us. And then we're told here, don't be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle else they will not come near to you. In other words, the Lord's wanting to guide us. The Lord's wanting to teach us. Let's, be, let's not be like a beast that resists. Let's not be like an animal that doesn't know that the owner loves that person, is wanting to heap blessing on them. The other night we were watching, uh, I don't know if it was House Hunters or one of those shows. It's funny because I never talked about that. I used an illustration about that on Wednesday. <laughs> But there was a lady trying to find a house and her whole, her whole thing went down to her dog. 
And she's like, I don't care what it costs. I have to have the perfect place for my dog. It's got to have grass. I got to be able to drop them off to doggy daycare when I go to work. Listen, I love animals. I got a little sarcastic watching it, I'll admit it. She ends up paying like $300 more a month because it has a lawn and whatnot. But it was interesting, and I thought, man, I bet the editor, whoever edited this, got a big kick because she's talking about this. And in the next scene, she's walking her dog, and the dog's doing one of these, these things. And she's just dragging the dog, and it was like the dog was crying out to the national audience, save me, deliver me, and whatnot, you know? <laughs> but listen, the owner loved the animal. The owner was willing to make great sacrifice. She said that the animal's happiness is more important than mine. The dog didn't get it, though. The dog was just like, quit dragging me around here. For goodness sake, let me run around. I'm... Your arms are cool sometimes, but let me, you know, be a dog here. But let's not be like that. Our Savior wants to heap on us love and goodness. Let's not resist. Let's not have to get strapped in and a bridle on our mouth. Let's just willingly go before him and trust him. Take a step of faith that our God loves us so much he died on the cross for us. He knows we're but dust. He knows the flesh wars against the soul. This is why he says, come to me and let me give you rest. An honest and a contrite art. He's not going to refuse. Again, when Adam came out of the bushes, yes, God's a realist. He says there's going to be consequences, but immediately a Savior is going to come. And the Savior he talked about was his own son. 10 and 11, many sorrows shall be to the wicked. And David, when he walked again in that wicked way, even as a believer, boy, there was sorrow in his heart. But he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Again, it's that picture, trust in the Lord. Remember, to trust it means to lean on, be dependent upon. Come to the Lord. Put faith in the Lord, and he is going to heap mercy upon mercy on you. And then be glad and rejoice, you righteous. And our righteousness is only found through faith in Jesus Christ. Right standing with God, through the Son of God, he says to rejoice, you righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And that's a picture of, again, Right standing with God, but being real with God. There's a joy found in that. There's a relief found in that. It's a picture of laying it down before the Lord. Experiencing, again, the love and assurance of God. The assurance that he's going to work it out, that he's going to go before us. And amazingly, I don't know how he even does this. He even works all those things for his glory and for our good. How do you do this, Lord? Amazingly, look at so many of those things I hid from him over the years. And not only did he forgive me, but somehow used them, I think, to, at least I hope, to make me a more effective ministry, minister. To be able to relate to the, listen, for lack of better words, world's labels, the scum of the earth, the demon oppressed, the person seeing stuff and hearing voices and whatnot and says, everyone thinks I'm nuts. No, no, you're not nuts. We're in a spiritual war, but I got a Savior that wants to deliver you. Amazing what he does. Let's stand up and let's ask the Lord to prep our hearts here for communion. I know you got fireworks to go home and light prematurely and whatnot. But let's make it our aim to finish well as an assembly of brothers and sisters. Amen. And let's ask the Lord to really bless this time of the Lord's Supper to our bodies. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. And the Lord told us to partake of communion in remembrance of Him. And when you hold that bread in your hands, let's remember the Lord's body broken for us. Jesus bore the wrath through us in His body. He's a just judge. Listen, sin's going to be judged. And give me no slap on the wrist. It's eternal hell. Like how can he be loving if he does that? He can't be loving unless he punishes sin. Don't tell me some judge is loving if he lets a murderer walk scot-free. He's not loving. It has to be judged. And yet Jesus took the judgment to us in his own body. Those stripes on that bread, those holes in that bread. There's no leaven in that bread. Jesus without sin, yet he was pierced. He took stripes for us. 
Let's remember that this morning and be thankful. And listen, if you don't know the Lord, call on him. Because he took the wrath to you. And then he shed his blood. And remember, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. We want to remember the Lord's blood shed for us. Life's in the blood. People say, all these Christians talking about blood and whatnot. Where are they? uh, Vampires or something. Listen, life's in the blood. It's his life laid down. Do you want to give an account before God of your life? And know God's standard is perfection. So even Mr. Goody Two-Shoes here, you fall grossly short of it. We all do. Or do you want to be under the perfect life of Jesus Christ to know that you know you're washed? Because not only did he not do everything he was tempted to do that was wrong, he did everything that he was supposed to do to the glory of God. You're like, well, I haven't done those things, but have you done what God has told you to do? The Lord did it all. And so we want to drink in remembrance of his blood shed, his life laid down, and death couldn't keep him. He was without sin, so he conquered it. And that's why we, we know we'll conquer death. Death's been conquered through Jesus and what he's done for us. So let's eat and drink in remembrance of that and rejoice in our Lord. And for goodness sakes, if there's things you're hiding before him, bring them before him. And if you're not ready, please skip out on this communion because some in Corinth died because they weren't being honest with God in taking it. Man, that's some gnarly stuff. What are we doing, Old Testament? No, that's New Testament. And by the way, God's the same yesterday and forever. But it's as simple as saying, Lord, here I am. I want to be real with you. Oh, respond to him. Be real with him today. Draw near to your Lord today. You don't need to fear him. You need to fear him, but you should not fear him. Lord, bless this communion table to us right now. Bless this bread and this cup. Be honored in this time. Glorify. Let us lift our voices to you and finish well. Listen, you can be seated. The ushers will pass out communion. We're going to close with the last couple songs, and you can partake as you're led by the Lord. Listen, if you want to pray with your spouse or perhaps the people you're with, it's okay to huddle up and do that. If you want to stand up and worship, you can. If you want to get there on your knees, uh, you can do that. Uh, you want to do a face plant, do that. And then you start jumping around and doing a, hey, look at me. Don't do that. Let's look to the Lord, but let's respond to him. Amen. Jesus Christ, I think upon your sacrifice, you became nothing for to death.
is going to be open up here. If you need prayer, come get prayer up here. Pray with someone out there. Encourage someone before you leave today. Exercise your gifts. Listen, if you gave your life to the Lord today, I encourage you to come up. There's folks that would love to pray with you. We want to put a Bible in your hands. There's ushers and others around too that want to give you a, a Bible if you don't have one. Pray you have a, a wonderful day and a, and a blessed holiday. And um, again, I just pray God will shine his face upon you. God bless you. Thank you.